Once again, let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this frail instrument to the end, that your word would be preached and proclaimed, and that ultimately the Spirit of God would be the very one who teaches us all. May we sit at the feet of Jesus and hear from him as we hear the scriptures here this morning. And I ask it in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So last Lord's Day, I introduced this subject of the the jealousy of God. And it's remarkable. It's actually kind of an interesting discussion and subject. I even had a chance as I was wandering the streets of Redondo Beach. Don't worry, it was intentional. I was trying to find something somewhere down the block and uh, came across somebody, started talking to them. And and I, in the middle of the conversation, I said, you know what, do, do you know and realize that God calls himself by name jealous? And the individual I was speaking to just stopped and looked at me and was stunned by what I was saying. Try it sometime. It's a, it's a great way to introduce a very important subject. I don't know that it's very common, but uh, I was able to explain what that even means and talk about the fact that God is, in fact, jealous For his glory and his jealousy, as we already discussed, is remarkably different from what we tend to experience when we talk about jealousy. By the way, last time I think I mentioned uh, my slugging the kid who offended Debbie Daniels. I hope if Debbie Daniels ever hears this message, just I'll ask for her forgiveness for bringing up her name. But, uh, But I can think of all kinds of instances in my life where I've been jealous over things and it wasn't righteous, it wasn't good, it wasn't holy. I think this is one of the reasons why it seems kind of strange to talk about the jealousy of God because human experience is so much different than what we're talking about. But this is why we began with this subject talking about the fact that God identifies himself by name as Jealous as a jealous God. And the principle that we really reviewed together last time is the fact that, again, God is jealous over his glory. We then talked about how it is that God throughout history has demonstrated this jealousy over his glory, pouring out judgment and wrath against anyone who would stand up against his glory and who would stand as rebels in his universe. And then, thirdly, the final point last time we talked about is the fact that God's jealousy should impact our lives. This truth is not some sort of an abstraction that we just put up on the chalkboard and talk about and say, well, this is interesting. No, this should have impact on the way in which we live from day to day. And so we touched on that last time in the third point um, when we were together last time. And we talked about the fact that, and this is a very key point, only a child of God can be caught up with this principle and this priority of being jealous for God's glory. This is a work of grace. If somebody is really committed to this idea of exalting God, you have to understand that's not what human flesh produces. It cannot produce this priority. What it is, is it's a work of divine grace. And apart from such grace, the natural man chafes against the idea of exalting anyone else other than self. And so this is why I mentioned Romans 1 last time. And how it is that the natural man exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures... And again, using the word exchange, Paul also says in verse 25 of Romans 1 that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. 
You go back to verse 21, and the, the foundational reality that Paul talks about there is this. He says that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And the word honor, the word there for honor, comes from the word doxa, glory. You could translate it as glory. They did not see or regard the glory of God, and that's why they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And that's why they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the frail and creaturely things of this world. The natural man does not have the eyes to see what is truly valuable. In John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, there's that remarkable moment when Christian and faithful go to Vanity Fair. You remember that? And they're walking around and there are all these merchants trying to, worldly merchants trying to sell their worldly wares to Christian and faithful. And Bunyan goes at great length to describe all the worldly wares that are being provided to them or being availed to them. And one merchant said to them, he said, what do you intend to buy? And they said, we buy the truth. That's it. One who has been bought by a price by the shed blood of Jesus Christ understands that that's the priority of our life. The glory of God and his truth, not the false truths of this world, not the worldly wares that we have in this fallen and corrupt world. And so, brethren, really what I'd like to do here this morning and what I mentioned last time is, is I am going to continue this message focusing more on this idea of how this truth actually impacts our lives. And that's what I'd like to do here this morning. And first of all, what I'd like for us to consider is how this truth of the, the glory of God is actually an imitation of Christ. This is the first thing I want us to consider. We did consider this to some extent last time, but I'd like to expand upon this a little bit more because when we talk about imitating Christ, we need to keep in mind the fact that Jesus had this priority of the glory of the Godhead. We talked about that last time. We need to think about what that looks like a little bit further. Secondly, I'd like for us to consider the fact that this priority, the glory of God, is necessary for the mortification of sin. If if it is your chief end, if it is your highest goal to give God glory, then sin will be destroyed. It will be killed. It's something that you're going to seek to mortify, not court and be friendly with. That, too, deserves more than just a second point. That could be a series, but uh, we'll just keep it to one point here this morning. Thirdly, I'd like for us to consider the fact that this priority, the glory of God, keeps us from becoming, mark this, man-pleasers. Man-pleasers. If the glory of God is our chief end and goal, then God's pleasure and desire is the thing that's first and foremost. And if that's our priority, then seeking the pleasure and expectations of men will not be in that list. And fourthly and finally, we'll consider how this priority, the glory of God, is essential for our gospel witness. Lord willing, we'll go through these four. But we'll begin with this idea of the fact that the the priority of the glory of God is, in fact, an imitation of Christ. Again, as I said before, We did survey this to some extent, and we did so by means of John 17, where Jesus is praying in that great high priestly prayer. He prayed to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. He also said something similar prior to this prayer in John chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus crying out, he said, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. 
There came therefore a voice out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Son of God sought the glory of the Godhead, and so should we. To the extent that we seek the glory of God, this is indeed an imitation of Christ. Now again, as I I think I said it last time, this may seem like a, a small and remedial consideration and meditation, but it is not. It deserves closer scrutiny because we need to think about what this looks like. What does it look like that the Son of God sought the glory of the Godhead? Turn with me to John chapter 2, if you would. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, we see that when the Passover of the Jews was at hand, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. But we can't stop there. Verse 17 then says, His disciples remembered that it was written in Psalm 69 and verse 9, Zeal for thy house will consume me. Now contemplate all that for a moment. Here we see the word for jealousy. We talked about this last time. The word in the Hebrew for jealous, kana speaks of this idea of one who is consumed with zeal and that bears the rudimentary idea of someone who is earnestly desiring that which is their own. It speaks of an individual who is caught up with this priority and this focus on preserving that which is their own. God's glory is his own, and so he is zealous or jealous for his glory. We talked about that last time. But here Jesus is quoting Psalm 69 in verse 9, which says, For zeal, kana, zeal or jealousy, for thy house has consumed me. The disciples understood that Jesus was jealous, zealous for the glory of the Father. By the way, if you read on and Uh, Psalm 69 and verse 9, it then says, David then says, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. In other words, those who, who blaspheme God, that burden of their blaspheming God is a burden on my back. Can't ignore it. So Calvin says of Psalm 69 and verse 9, that the psalmist burned with a holy zeal for the church and for the glory of God. And this is exactly what we see in Jesus' actions in the temple. Brethren, contemplate this for a moment. When we ask the question, what does it look like for Jesus to be one who sought the glory of the Godhead? Well, it looks like him taking a scourge of cords and storming into the temple to to the horror of the blasphemers and idolaters who were wanting to make their cozy little religion that centered not around the glory of God, but around their own selfish desires. And he did not tolerate it for a second. That's what the priority of the glory of God looks like. Our Jesus is meek and lowly, but that's not all that he is. He is the majestic king of kings, and he fiercely seeks the glory of his father. Do you remember the wristbands, the what would Jesus do wristbands? Remember that when that was all the rage? One of the problems that I always thought that came about with those wristbands is, is this, is that people would speculate about what Jesus would do if he were here today. And I always thought to myself, wouldn't a better wristband be 
what did Jesus do so that we could ground our thinking in the historical reality of biblical truth rather than speculating about what he might do if he were here today? I, I think that might have been the better wristband. The reason why I say that is because I've run into a lot of people who would say, well, if Jesus were here today, you know, he would embrace these things or those things or this sin, or he would accept communities of people just as they are. Yes, he tenderly shared the gospel with the lost, but he never affirmed their sin or ignored it. He strongly rebuked the false religionists who had exalted the traditions of men, calling them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, thieves, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, serpents, brood of vipers, murderers, sons of Satan, and sons of hell. This is what the priority of the glory of God looks like and sounds like. For those who shudder at Christ's fierce rebukes of the religious leaders of the day, just remember there's a day that is coming, the day of his judgment, when he will utter the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And those who will spend eternity in hell will have those words resonating in their hearts and minds forever without end. That is terrifying. God will be exalted among the nations, Psalm 46. He will be glorified. And the thing that we have to remember is, is that when we share the gospel with others, we must remind them of the fact that God will be glorified one way or the other. The day of judgment will not be a temporal rebuke, as Jesus delivered when he walked this earth to those religious leaders. But it will be an eternal condemnation of the Messiah's enemies in eternal hell. And mark this, such vengeance will not be an uncontrolled expression of unrighteous rage, which again, many times our expressions of jealousy end up becoming just unrighteous expressions of affection and feeling. But it will be a holy and just expression of retribution so that the Lord, who is jealous, will receive all glory, not only through his redeemed people, but he will also be glorified through the eternal condemnation of his enemies. Everything that Christ did, mark this, everything that Christ did had the priority of the glory of God. And the appeasement of men did not supplant that priority ever for Christ. So brethren, our goal must be to imitate Christ in this regard. Which brings us then to a second principle. This priority of the glory of God, as we just indicated a moment ago, is necessary for the mortification of sin. If we are really consumed with, caught up with the priority of the glory of God, then we won't see sin as, 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 as human flesh normally sees it. You see, the more we understand the binary nature of life, that we're either living for the glory of self and the glory of the flesh, or we're living for the glory of God, the more we understand that, the better off we'll be. And the more we understand that there's not some middle ground in which we can exist, again, we'll be better off to see that that reality. It's either the glory of self or the glory of God. In our scripture reading this morning from John chapter 5, Jesus raised this remarkable question. Of those who were seeking glory from one another, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. If we understand that God is the Savior and he stands alone in that capacity, then we know and understand that he's our only hope. And if we understand that he's our only hope, then he alone will be our trust. And in him alone we will believe. Believe as unto salvation. But when we seek glory from one another, we prioritize men above God. 
then suddenly we enter into a man-made religion that take, takes God and places him down and elevates, takes, takes God and, and, and takes him down and elevates man above his station. This is always dangerous, and it is a natural uh, capacity of the flesh. In fact, in Psalm 12 and verse 4, I'm always stunned whenever I read Psalm 12 and verse 4, where David describes the wicked, the rasha wicked, who confess the following. They say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. By the way, is that true? Did you make your own lips? I mean, come on. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? What a remarkable question. And you know the inferred answer to the question is, nobody's Lord over us. We're our own lords. We're our own masters. We can make up whatever we want to, and we can do whatever we want to. Blasphemy. But this is what is in the heart of the natural man. Every one of us, by nature, is found here in Psalm 12 and verse 4. Human flesh seeks autonomy. Human flesh seeks self-praise. Only a regenerate heart seeks the glory of God alone. And brethren, I don't think I have to explain to you that our culture is filled with examples of self-exaltation and self-glory. Sadly, it was just last month that we heard about the tragic massacre of three children and three adults at a private Christian elementary school in Nashville. That was tragic in and of itself, but the tragedy that followed that was the media coverage by many of the leftist media outlets, whereby they had these remarkable and, and highly disturbing interviews, one of which came from MSNBC, no surprise there, where the host Joy Reid interviewed a man by the, whose original name is Charles Clymer, who now goes by the name of Charlotte Clymer, and claims to be a transgender woman. The chirons on the bottom of the screen well summarize just how upside down our world is. As the interview was going on, the chirons uh, read uh, the following. It said, uh, transgender Americans under siege. They're the victims. And then the other one that really caught my eye said this, transgender shooting suspect sparks outrage on the right. Really? Only conservatives are upset over the fact that someone committed a mass murder? I thought mass murder was something that we could all look at and say, that's bad. But no, and now it's just a thing of the right. Remarkable. As bad as that was, though, the interview went even further south from there. The man who calls himself Charlotte, wearing makeup, jewelry, and a dress confidently declared the following, quote, God made me in her image. God made me transgender, end quote. And when asked what he thinks of those who criticize his claims of transgenderism, he, who calls himself Charlotte, said, I can't see Christ in their words. What version of Jesus is this? It's the version of Jesus that enters into the speculative imaginations of corrupt human thinking. That's the version of Jesus that we have with that. But it is not the true Jesus of Scripture. Again, the blasphemous confession of the natural man is this, with our tongue we will, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Man can stand up and say, I'm a woman, and now we're supposed to accept this. This is a declaration of self-sovereignty. Who is Lord over us? You know, someday they're going to find out. And that will be a terrifying day. This is why we must prioritize the gospel. Because nothing else fixes any of this. 
Only Christ can bring a man like this who is clearly, and I don't mean this to be crass, but he is clearly out of his mind. Go read Ecclesiastes 9.3 and just remember the fact that we are all literally insane. And as Solomon says, insanity dwells in their hearts and after this they go to the dead. That's what we are apart from grace. Rather than acknowledging that God made humanity male and female and instituted marriage in order to mirror the beauty and fidelity of his relationship with his chosen people, the LGBTQ community lays claim of sovereignty over the creator and over their own bodies in their quest for sexual perversion and hedonism. Let me offer a cautionary statement now. This priority of the glory of God means that we must speak the truth in love and must be committed to that message. But mark this, there are consequences, humanly speaking, that will come. Remember, we mentioned last time how John the Baptist had this wonderful confession regarding Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is a confession for the glory of God. And what happened to John the Baptist? Having rebuked Herod for the incestuous relationship that he had with Herodias, he lost his head. He was beheaded. And I don't say this to put fear in your hearts of men, but to remind you all of this principle. Standing for the glory of God, yes, it's dangerous, but remember this, and we talked about this when we went through Psalm 46. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot destroy the soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We do not fear men. We fear the Almighty God and seek his glory above all. Let me offer another cautionary note. I've just mentioned the LGBTQ movement and the transgender movement. I think sometimes our fixation on the sins of others can increase the blind spots of our own sin in our own lives. What the LGBTQ community is advancing is clearly and obviously blasphemous. But it is also blasphemous when the church treats, for example, marriage like a cheap disposable object by promoting hypocrisy, specious divorce, fornication, or denigrating marital fidelity in any one of countless ways. Mark this. When the world acts like this, we shouldn't be surprised. But when the professing church does this, we must remember the words of Peter that judgment begins with the household of God. It begins here. And where the glory of God is not the priority of the people, we can just say the word Ichabod. Ichabod. The glory has departed. The denigration of marriage is yet another means by which the professing church obfuscates God's glory. The church of Corinth, for an example was being influenced by the licentiousness of the culture around it. And so this is the reason why Paul had to write to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6 and say to them, flee immorality. He says, every other sin that a man commits out is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Let me say that again. You are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, Paul says. Therefore, what? Glorify God with your body. You are his possession to this end that you would live for his glory above all. 
And Paul says that you've been bought with a price. He uses the clear terminology of manumission. From the root word agarazzo, which comes from the word agora, which means of which means a marketplace. It bore the idea of purchasing something with money. It was then used to speak of the idea of purchasing a slave's freedom. And it's in this sense that we're talking about the fact that we've been bought with a price. We were slaves to sin, and we have been purchased out of that slavery to sin by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We're his possession. (laughs) Glory to God for that truth. But remember this, every man is a slave. The question is, who's your master? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free to do what? Live for yourself? No, it is to live for the one who purchased you with his own blood. That's what we are to do. That's our joy. That's our freedom. That's, that's our servitude. That's our willing heart. A heart that has now been made willing to serve the one who purchased us. In view of the teaching of John 8 and 1 Corinthians 6, brethren, remember this. Without the emancipation of King Jesus, no person on earth is truly free. They may think they're free. They may think they're masters of their own universe, and they do according to Psalm 12 and verse 4. But they're not. They're slaves of sin. Charles Spurgeon was right when he said this. When a man admires himself, he never adores God. He that is taken up with the conceit of his own righteousness will never see the righteousness of Christ. If thou believest thyself to be pure, thou wilt never prize the blood which cleanses from all sin. If thou believest thyself to be already perfect, thou wilt not prize the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier. No man cries for grace till he perceives his own need of it. If therefore we be puffed up with the notion that we are rich and and increased in goods, we shall never see the riches of grace which are treasured up in Christ Jesus. Amen. The natural man boasts of his own glory while deriding the glory of God, and he confesses the question, who is Lord over us, so as to say, no one. But King Jesus is Lord of all. And that's why it is so crucial that we share the gospel with the lost. The children of God are known by a remarkably different standard than the world. We are to be known as those who seek the glory of Almighty God. As we seek to mortify sin in our own lives and wherever we find it. This brings us then to a third consideration regarding this priority of the glory of God. This priority of the glory of God keeps us from becoming man-pleasers. It keeps us from becoming man-pleasers. Again, when we go back and contemplate John 17, 1, when Jesus said, Father, mark the language, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, and the Son may, that the Son may glorify thee. What is this but what we would call a theocentric or God-centered priority? And I would argue and say that such a priority and such a view is the believer's guiding star amidst the torrent of this life in this fallen world. Such a perspective reminds us that our Lord is our master and we are his bond slaves. Now, by the way, as soon as I use the word bond slaves or we use the word slavery in this current generation and day, that's a touchy word. And there are all kinds of people who get very lit up about the language of slavery. To some extent, I understand it because this word has been used and abused quite a bit. 
even from professing believers. We've got to be careful and clear to be scriptural in our description of everything. And what we need to remind people of is the fact that, yes, I'm a slave. I'm a bond slave, but I'm not a bond slave of men. I'm a bond slave of Christ. Don't shrink back from that language, even though it may be controversial in the modern day. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your doulos, bondservants or bondslaves, for Jesus' sake. Paul basically says, what am I? Nothing. I'm just a bondslave of Jesus. I think the best translation in the English, look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, a bondslave is someone who is bound. What are the bonds that the Christian have? What is it that binds us or constrains us? In what sense are we bond slaves of God? And what, what are the, the, the bonds that we wear? Well, according to Paul, and he says this later on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 4, 14, he says, the love of Christ, suneke, constrains us. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm a bond slave of Christ, but the, the bonds that I wear are the bonds of Christ's love. So what he's saying is, he's saying, I don't serve God out of compulsory servitude because I have to. I serve him out of love. We love, we confess, because he first loved love us. He first loved us. That's why we love. Why are we willing servants? Because he has placed a willing heart within us. So the confession of being a bond slave of Christ unfolds remarkable truths, and we need to share them with people. The bondslave of Christ is a beloved, joyful servant whose focus is on the will of God rather than the will of man. Now think back to John 17 and verse 1. As Jesus was praying that the Father would be glorified, that he would be glorified, that the Father would be glorified, remember he says, Father, the hour has come. What, What is that referring to? What is the hour that he speaks of? Well, it is the hour or the time of his humble sacrifice on the cross and his glorious triumph over the grave. That hour was coming. And it was the hour in which he would be glorified and the Father would be glorified with him. That language in John 17, 1 reminds us of the fact that Christ was fixed and focused on the will of God. The hour refers to Christ's fulfillment of the covenant of redemption, the ordained will of the Godhead that was established before the foundation of the world. And Christ came to fulfill that will. And nothing was going to stop him. He was so focused On the will of God that it says in Luke 9 and verse 51 that when the days were approaching for his ascension, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Resolutely. Nothing was going to stop him. The will of God was his priority because the glory of the Godhead was his priority. May it never be that we would stand in the way of the will of God. We do when we sin every time, but brethren, we ought to mortify such things. Peter learned the lesson of what happens when you stand up against the will of God. Jesus in Matthew 16, we learn, began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus didn't say, oh, Peter, that's so sweet of you. 
You're so, you carry about me so much. I'm sure Peter was probably not thinking very well, and he was just concerned about the Savior's well-being. But mark this, he was standing in opposition to the will of God, and Jesus, making it very clear that that's what was happening, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. In seeking this priority of the glory of the Godhead, Christ came into this world not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. And in like manner, the disciple of Christ does not seek self-exaltation, but labors as a servant for the glory of the one who purchased him. The Christian's highest priority is not to be socially acceptable or to look about in a horizontal sense and wonder, well, I wonder if people like me and, and like the things that I'm doing and approve of what I'm doing. Our highest priority is to ask the question, is God honored and pleased? Everything else is secondary. Paul made this clear when he was describing the manner in which he was ministering the word of God to the Galatians. He said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Then he raises this question, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a doulos, a bond slave of Christ. I serve him. I don't serve men. I don't spend my days worrying about whether or not this person approves of what I'm thinking or saying or doing or that person. My first question is, is God honored and glorified? Everything else is secondary, and it must be this way. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 25. Please. Here we've been talking about the jealousy of God for his glory. And here in this point we're talking about the fact that this priority means that we will not be men-pleasers. Here's an example. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it. He arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them, both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body, so the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now stop right there for a moment. How many people who are aliens to Scripture would look at this and say, this is terrible? Well, it is terrible because people sinned against God. If you want to talk about what's terrible in this text... God was blasphemed and dishonored. 
The Lord then spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sins for the sons of Israel. This is what jealousy for God's glory looks like. And while we serve in the new covenant of his blood and we don't slay people with physical swords, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but we are armed with the full armor of God and the sword that we carry is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And it will slay some people. It will convict them. It will make them hate you sometimes. But mark this, do not fear them. Honor God, give him glory, and know and understand that they need to hear the truth. If you hide truth from people, you're hating them. It may feel good in the moment, but at the end of the day, you're hating them and the God who gave you the truth to give to them. And this brings us then to the last and final point. This priority of the glory of God is essential for our gospel witness. Brethren, we live in a world that is simply a binary reality. The children of God and the children of the devil. There's the glory of God and the glory of self and the glory of flesh and the glory of the wisdom of men. Thomas Brooks is right when he says, Till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. It's one or the other. May those who know us know that we serve King Jesus, that we're bond slaves of Christ and we're bound by his love and we tell the truth and we speak the truth in love because we love him. If we stand for the glory of God, you know what's going to happen? You're going to stand out more and more. The more we stand for the glory of God, the more we stand out in this world as lights, as Paul says, as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But that's the point. We're to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. They may throw stones, hurl invectives at you. Who knows what they'll do? But this is how we are known in this world. This is how we're to be known as those who have been bought with a price and we seek the glory of our God above all. In a moment, we're about to sing a hymn. The sands of time are sinking. I'm going to ask you real quick, who knows this hymn? The sands of time are sinking. Okay, it might be new to some of you. And to others, um, it isn't. But this hymn is based upon the writings of Samuel Rutherford, 17th century Scottish pastor who was faithful to serve the glory of God throughout his life. Spurgeon so loved the letters of Rutherford that he called them the most inspired writings short of the Bible ever written by a mere mortal. At his death, on his deathbed, it is said that Rutherford declared, glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And you'll see that refrain in the hymn. 
But I often think of the fourth verse in view of our wedding, Sandra and I. We, my bride made her own dress. Forgive me for just revealing that here, but I, I, it was amazing. She worked very hard on that dress. I don't know how many buttons she put in the back of that dress. It was like 50 or so buttons. It was an amazing work. Beautiful. She was beautiful. The dress was beautiful. On our wedding day, though, I can tell you that as beautiful as that dress was, I wasn't necessarily staring at the dress. I was focused on looking at my bride. That was my focus. I was mirroring her, not her dress, right? That concept of personal loyalty and devotion, God is jealous for. He, he is jealous that you would love him, that we would love him above all, and that he would be the focus of our lives as our first love. And so the fourth verse that we're about to sing, I want you to consider. Speaking of our coming day in glory, in that great heavenly wedding to Christ, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let that be the confession of our hearts here this morning and throughout the rest of our lives. May it grow, may it increase, and may it be that we would seek the glory of our God more and more each and every day. Heavenly Father, we commend this petition to you and ask for grace to live for you alone, above any other. We ask it in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.